Thanks for listening to The Vine's podcast. The Vine is a church in Austin, Texas, with the simple goal of following Jesus together. And we hope this message helps you in doing just that. Alrighty, this morning our reading is from Mark 5, verses 1 through 20. They went across the lake to the region of Gerasenes. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? In God's name, don't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, Come out of this man, you impure spirit. Then Jesus asked him, What is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, Send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. He gave them permission, and the impure spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. As Jesus was getting back into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him, but said, Go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and the people were amazed. This is the word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Haley, like Fab said, and I am a Vine Covenant community member, and I also happen to be married to Brian, who leads worship here. And together, we raise our creatures, Lennon and Clyde. Um, In my day-to-day, I work for an organization called Red Oak Hope, and we provide care for survivors of sexual exploitation, both here and around the world. But today, I get to talk to you about our Vine core value of being an outward-focused community, one of our distinctives in this series on distinctives that we're in. Here at the Vine, we believe that Jesus models for us what a life of generosity, compassion, and service could look like in this world. In response to Jesus' sacrificial love for us as a community, we will look for opportunities to give ourselves away as we bless Austin and, I would add, beyond and live for the sake of others. Living for the sake of others, or compassionately caring for others. I think that the church in America has gotten really, really good at commoditizing what it means to compassionately care for other people. We have become very good at packaging experiences that make us feel like we're doing that thing, like short-term mission trips or um, time-bound service projects, things that kind of make us feel like we've checked the box of service. And please hear me, I work for a small nonprofit, so service projects are very, very helpful. (laughs) Um, This very church body has actually spent a ton of time at Red Oaks Transitional House uh, fixing things and making things beautiful in a way that has made us and the individuals we serve feel very, very loved. And 
Um, Jesus calls us into more than a project, but a way of being in the world. It's an invitation to look at and move towards the suffering, oppression, and injustice of our day and to respond. This is hard to do, y'all. We have so much access to the worst and most heartbreaking things happening in our world and in our communities through the little things we carry around with us, like the, the um, struggle between wanting to acknowledge the depth of the hard things and just like wanting to eat a cheeseburger in the sunshine is very real. And um, the word of hope that scripture offers us is that though injustice, oppression, and suffering have always existed, God has a plan to end injustice and offer redemption here on earth as it is in heaven. And that plan is Jesus through the church, through us, moving towards the suffering rather than retreating or trying to control others. Before we get started, I want to say that this may come off some kind of way because my day-to-day employment is in the work of justice, but that has definitely not always been the case. I am a theater kid turned speech language speech language pathologist um, turned anti-trafficking advocate and somewhere in there like I really wanted to work for SeaWorld until I found out about their very rigorous swimming and marine biology requirements. Google that. It is very, very something. Um, (laughs) But um, I have always had a heart um, and an empathy and compassion for people and my understanding, though, of God's heart for in people experiencing injustice and oppression has only relatively recently been a thing that I've started to understand. And um, I've lost my place. There we go. So to help us to be super clear about how much God cares about this, let's look at the screen and see just some of the things that it says in Psalms. So barely even like scratching the surface of the entirety of scripture about God and his heart for the oppressed. In Psalm 9, it says, the Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. In Psalm 10, O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed, so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. In Psalm 140, I know that the Lord secures justice for the poor and upholds the cause of the needy. In Psalm 146, he upholds the cause of the oppressed and gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets prisoners free. This has always been who God is, and Scripture tells us that over and over and over again. But sometimes these statements can feel really, really far off from our day-to-day realities. So God gives us examples of how Jesus lives this out as a mercy for us to look to and follow. So today... We're going to use that incredibly long text (laughs) um, to teach us about how God um, has sent Jesus to care for those on the outskirts. As a case study, we're going to use the story of the man with the legion. So let's first look at the setting and circumstances of the story. Who was the story about? So scripture tells us that there was a man, that he had an unclean spirit, which gives us the information that he didn't have control over his body, heart, and mind. But other than that, we know very little else about him. What? Nope. Where? Different WH question. Where? He lived among the tombs, which means he was on the outskirts of the city. We know this is true because when Jesus and the disciples come up from the boat, on the boat, he immediately greets him. And then 
when the townspeople later come to see what's happening with this man and Jesus, they come out of the city. So he's living pushed to the outskirts of the city among death and in isolation. Well, what were the people doing? How is he received by them? In verse 3 to 4, it says, And he lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound and sh with shackles and chains. But he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. So the people were constantly having these interactions with him. They didn't just banish him to the tombs and leave him alone there. They returned over and over and over again to what? To bind and subdue him, to control him. Well, if they were having to do that, then what was he doing? He must have been terrorizing the town, murdering, stealing, hurting people, right? Well, that's not exactly what scripture tells us. It says, Mark tells us that the man was night and day among the tombs and in the mountains. He was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. This word always is important because it means, obviously, that this is what he was always doing, crying out and cutting himself. When Mark and Fabs first asked if I'd be interested in preaching on the outward focus distinctive, this was the first image that came to my mind. A man pushed to the absolute outskirts of a town, chained there over and over and over again by the townspeople when he was a danger primarily to himself because they were so afraid. They were so afraid that all they could even think to do was to keep him as far away from them as possible and to control him. This is sadly the legacy that humans on the whole have as we engage with the vulnerable. We push away what we don't understand and we do it systematically and individually. These people were so scared that all they could even think to do was to push him away and violently control him. And we are still doing this. And we see it play out systemically and individually. I want us to look up at this diagram on the screen. It's a graphic from the National Equity Project. And I like it because it's a concise and clear way to look at how oppression, things like racism, sexism, classism, ableism, et cetera, can play out kind of individually systemically and at this interpersonal juncture. So over to your right, we see systemically institutions. These are policies and practices like within organizations. And then structurally, these things play out across multiple, multiple organizations and then across history. So our very city has a immense history of segregation and redlining that has impacted the safety, location, and access to resources for African-American and Latinx communities across multiple, multiple generations. Or look at how our city is engaging with individuals who are unhoused. It's a super complex situation that requires really creative solutions, but most of the solutions proposed involve moving people away from spaces where we can see them, as if that actually fixes anything. These kind of out of sight, out of mind solutions don't restore dignity or value the individuals impacted. Over here we see individually, so a person's beliefs and actions that serve to perpetuate oppression. That can be conscious or unconscious, externalized and internalized fear that leads to how we view the people around us who are different from us. And while these things are internal, 
They absolutely impact how we interact with humans over here in this interpersonal section in the middle. It might be hard for us to, re to relate to the townspeople in this story because most likely nobody here has ever chained anybody on the outskirts of town, we hope. But um, think about the ways that we, that, that was culturally acceptable back then. Now think about the things that are culturally acceptable for us. So think of the humans in your life that are crying out for help. Um, maybe we just want them to stop or to go away or to try to control and manage the situation so that we feel comfortable, even though they may be desperately seeking compassion. Or when I am in my car and I see the man standing holding a sign next to me and he doesn't look like me and he appears to be yelling and I make a bunch of quick internal judgments about who he is and as a result how safe I am, all out of fear. I move inward to protect myself from some fear I have inferred and most likely created an attempt to control the situation and I miss an opportunity to connect. I miss an opportunity to restore dignity to a child of God standing right next to me. So it is with our sweet friend in this story. He was systematically pushed to the outskirts, I have to imagine, when the institutions and the city center didn't know what else to do. And the townspeople carried both internal conscious and subconscious thoughts about him driven by their own fears that led them to interact with him in, in an incredibly violent, isolating, and controlling way. And there is hope. Jesus flips all of this on its head. Let's return to the text and look at the difference between how Jesus responded to the man versus the people. In, verse six, six, in verses 6 through 9, it says, And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. When the man sees Jesus, he goes to greet him. He recognizes him and, and immediately moves towards him. As we've talked about, he is demon-possessed. The text alludes to the demons recognizing Jesus as the Son of God and pleading for mercy, and the man still exists. Like, he is still there. He may not have full control over his heart, mind, body, spirit, but he is still there, and I have to believe that the part of them thought that still had hope, that that still thought he could be well, that he was worthy of love, also ran to Jesus. Recognized him, not because of he had met him before or even really knew, knew what to expect from him, but because of who Jesus was and how he must have been engaging with him. How Jesus must have been looking at the man. He did not avert his eyes or try to come up with the reason to look busy in the boat. He just looked at him straight on with every bit of mercy and acceptance and love that he has to offer him, how very human this man must have felt for the first time in a long time. And as soon as Jesus sees him, he immediately moves in and calls out the demon, saying, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. As I have reread this sentence, come out of the man, you unclean spirit, I have increasingly found this language to be so affirming and beautiful. He identifies him first as a man. He also asks, what is your name? 
Some of the commentaries I've read suggest that that question was directed at the demons, but I honestly don't think Jesus cared what the demon's name was. I think he very much cared about the man that they were possessing. How often do we identify someone by their greatest suffering? We can throw around terms like divorcee, orphan, addict. The difference between the dignity given by learning someone's name instead of identifying them with a label is holy ground. And Jesus sees us. He saw this man as his child first, and he heals him supernaturally by calling out the demons and sending them to their death. At this point, we should probably address the pigs. <laughs> R.I.P. pigs. Moving right along. <laughs> Jesus fully restored and healed both his physical and spiritual needs and returned dignity to the man. We know this because after this display of healing and pig death, the herdsman runs into the town and brings the people to see what happened. And, and what do they see? In verse 15, it says, he was sitting there, clothed, and in his, in, in his right mind. Jesus restored him physically and spiritually. He is no longer possessed. And that would have been enough, but Jesus clothes him. And Jesus may have miraculously clothed him out of nowhere. I mean, that's definitely in his wheelhouse. But I wonder if instead he turned to the people around him, his friends, the disciples, and together they clothed him with his best. They brought him into their community and valued his dignity as a child of God. This is how Jesus teaches us to move towards the vulnerable. He teaches us to look them in the eye, to see them as children of God, and ask and call them by their name, to seek holistic healing and to restore dignity through generous acts of compassion. This is what he models for us as, as we wrestle with the fallenness of our humanity and our tendency to want to just look the other way. He meets us with that same compassion and says, give him your clothes, hand him your shoes, call him by his name. There are a couple of things at the end of this story that I don't want us to miss because I think they're incredibly unique. First, in verse 15 through 16, it tells us that even when they see the man fully restored, no longer possessed by demons, no longer dangerous to them, they are so afraid that they ask Jesus to leave. Like, they're so afraid of the miracle and the healing and the power that they don't want him to stay, which seems really counterintuitive to us because we've been following along with this man's story. But I have to imagine that the level of fear that these townspeople were trapped in was deep and unwavering. And instead of them seeing the beauty of the miracle, it just made them more afraid because they couldn't control any of it. This wasn't in their plan for the man. The second thing I want us to notice is that at the end of this story, Jesus does actually leave, as the townspeople asked, and the man begs to go with Jesus. I can understand that. The only person that's ever shown him compassion his healer. Of course he wants to go with Jesus and be by his side for the rest of his life. But Jesus sends him back to his people to be the teacher. He says in verse 19, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. 
This was very out of character for Jesus because he would often tell people to go and tell no one after a healing. I believe he desired to see full relational restoration and integration back into his community. And he elevated the story of this man. He elevated the voice, the same voice that had been crying out so loudly and so constantly. He elevated that voice, the one who was oppressed. And Jesus trusted him and sent him to preach the good news of God's healing love to the Gentiles in his hometown. He sent him to teach the good news and to be believed and simultaneously taught the people what it meant to learn from the one who injustice had been enacted upon. And I believe for us this translates to the recognition that we need to sit under the teaching of those who have traditionally experienced marginalization and oppression at our hands. How beautiful is it that Jesus chose this man's healed and restored voice to teach them and to teach us. Here at the Vine, we have a lot of opportunities to engage with ministry partners, as Fab mentioned, in Austin and around the world, and we do that through our Compassion Team. Like she said, there will be a table with some of our friends from the Compassion Team over here in the corner. It's very colorful, um, so check it out. We're also one session into a four-part cohort, cohort on deepening the soul for justice that Heather Moga and I are leading. And it's every other Wednesday night virtually. We'd love you to join. The next one is this Wednesday, June 29th. We want to be a resource for each other and learning how to do this well together because we're all learning for real. And I believe that the way that each of us individually move towards this, those who are suffering and oppressed will look really, really different based on our individual strengths. And while our tendency very well may be to push to the outskirts, avoid ignore and control out of fear, Jesus lovingly and patiently teaches us how to move in, to see, to listen, to extend mercy and restore relationships through mutuality with our friends who are experiencing oppression and isolation, and through him, we are equipped to do so. I don't think I'm saying anything here that anyone wildly disagrees with. I think we all desire to see a world where the church moves towards those who are experiencing suffering. The reason we default to control or moving away is because it is incredibly emotionally unpleasant to engage in the suffering of other people. And the reason things like mission trips or highly packaged experiences work is because they make us feel good. It's an experience we have where we walk away feeling good. But to quote Mechtis Haddis, a phenomenal missiologist and a, a dear friend of Heather Moga's, the missionary journey we see in scripture, the missionary journeys we see in scripture are almost always long-suffering, long-term, and selfless. Whereas our day, it's almost like there is an unspoken rule that says satisfaction guaranteed. Moving towards oppression and suffering is definitely not a satisfaction guaranteed experience. So in a minute... Um, we're going to take a little bit of time to spend in quiet reflection where we each get really curious and compassionate with ourselves about what may be getting in the way um, of us being people who, like Jesus, move towards suffering. What specifically makes you move away or want to manage this situation? What makes you feel afraid or worried or anxious or overwhelmed or even overly responsible? 
just a quick story. There is a sweet friend that we've been working with for the last year through Red Oak. Um, she's incredibly vulnerable and has been re-victimized multiple times. And twice, we've connected her to housing programs, um, once ours a year ago, and most recently another really great one in here in Austin. And each time, I have laid out in my head exactly what I think the best path forward for her is. Like, I know what is good and right and will keep her safe, and I am always willing to share it and reshare it with her um, and make this map of this, like, beautiful long-term safety plan and how it will all work out for sure because, of course, it will. I know best. And both times she has said no to these offerings for a variety of reasons. And, of course, I'm just completely shocked because surely it's the right thing to do. It's my plan. And if I can control this really sad situation, then I don't have to feel uncomfortable with her journey. So here's my work. The work of not trying to control my friend's journey and also not choosing to push her away. But to get curious, to move in, to call her by her name. Meet her where she is and call on the one who teaches us how to do this well with both compassion and health. So let's just spend some time together asking the Holy Spirit to move and, and to teach us more about ourselves and who we are and where our work may be. And I'll pray to close in a minute. Jesus, we thank you that you are such a beautiful example of the love that God has had for us from the beginning. That you are the embodied version of this love that we know has been there, but often admittedly feels really far off in the face of things that are hard and broken and jagged and painful in our lives and in the lives of the people around us and the communities around us. And we know that you are our patient and loving teacher God, you know the reasons why it can be hard for each of us. God, you know the things that we worry about. You know the things that make us feel uncomfortable, and you know that we don't want to feel uncomfortable most of the time. And yet, you continue to take us by the hand. You continue to remind us that your heart is for those who are on the outskirts, Lord, those who have been pushed away, those who feel forgotten, those who feel lonely those who have broken and fractured communities, that you say, this is my church, and I desire us to move in and be community for these children, your children. God, teach us what the next baby, baby step is in each of our lives in moving towards being more like you, Jesus. And let the vine, the small but mighty and kind and safe community be a space where we invite in and we move out and we learn what it feels like to not control or to not push away but to embrace with deep deep mutuality and compassion those in our communities in our world who are needing the light and the hope that you have to offer We ask all these things in your name, Jesus, and we love you. Amen.
We hope you found this message encouraging. If you would like to learn more about The Vine, get connected to our community, or contribute financially to The Vine's ministry, go to our website at thevineaustin.org.